1 Corinthians 15. We're going to take a break this week from our series through Galatians and look at verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 15. The title of our sermon this morning is Of First Importance. And our key words for our worshipers in training are importance, resurrection, and grace. Well, what is important this week? I went to look at the top trending stories on Friday afternoon, and here they are, the top stories, what's most important this week. Friday marked the 15th anniversary of Vince Carter's dunk over the top of a seven-foot-one competitor in the 2000 Olympics. I will tell you, it was pretty amazing. The rapper Eazy-E has reportedly been injected with HIV. Speaker of the House John Boehner is stepping down from his post in the House of Representatives at the end of October. Social media users are reportedly spreading rumors involving Alabama's offensive coordinator. Pope Francis visited the United States and gave speeches to joint sessions of Congress and addresses the UN in New York City. First Lady Michelle Obama is to appear on Disney Junior animated TV show Doc McStuffins. Disneyland will be closing several attractions during the construction of Star Wars Land. And Kanye West confirmed his intentions to run for president in 2020 and said, quote, Ben Carson won't talk to me. These are your most important stories of the week. These are the headlines that we see each and every day. But are these really what's most important? The world thinks so. There's a lot of time and a lot of money spent talking about all of these kinds of things, and we could go on and on. Obviously, some of them are a little bit more important than others, but on the whole, how long are they even in the headlines? How important are they, really? Today, we're talking about Kanye West and John Boehner, but tomorrow, these stories will be forgotten, and we'll move on to the next one. So really, how important are they? The Apostle Paul answers the question for us in our text this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to tell us what is of first importance. What is the most important truth? Not just today and not just tomorrow, but for all of time. The greatest thing we can know and understand and think about and talk about and believe, what is that? you're using a blue Bible from the seat back in front of you, you can find our text on page 961. And we're going to look at this text by looking verse by verse, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. So you can follow along and we will make application along the way. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Now, I want to point out that when Paul uses that word brothers, he's almost always using a noun that is understood to be brothers and sisters. So we understand he's writing to believers. Christians are his audience. He writes, I want to remind you of the good news I preached to you and that you received. And the good news that he preached and they received, he gets to in verse 3. But let's look first at what he's saying here. I preached the gospel to you and you received it. Now notice he says that in the past tense. 
You, and then he says, you are standing in it. What is that? That's the present tense. And then verse 2, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believe in vain. So he says you are being saved. There's a present reality and a, and a future movement and a promise there. So Paul works out this progressive reality. Something happened in the past, and it's the hearing of the gospel and the believing of the gospel. Something's being worked out in the present, and something will continue to be worked out in the future. This is a very important progression for us to understand. Hearing the gospel leads to believing the gospel, which leads to standing in the gospel, which leads to an ongoing reality of being in Christ and growing to become more and more Christ-like unto death. So as Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, he's telling them, I want you to know what you already know. And if you're in Christ, you do know because you received the gospel. I preached it to you and you received it. Now notice at the beginning of verse 2, Paul writes, by which you are being saved. By this gospel I preached, you received, you're standing, and you're being saved. And we have to ask the question here, saved from what? You know, we live in the South, so it's not uncommon to hear people say they are saved or that they got saved or whatever. Well, what exactly does that even mean? What does it mean to be saved? It implies something of a rescue that took place, right? We were taken out of a situation. We were removed from a condition that was harmful or detrimental or perilous, right? Isn't that what it means to be saved from something? So what's the danger? What's the harm? What's the peril that we need to be saved from? The Bible talks about several different things. We've looked at a few in our series through Galatians, but most important is what Paul addresses in his letter to the Romans. If we are in Christ... If we are Christians, Paul writes in Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So you see, there it is. If we are saved, we are saved by God from God. We are saved by by God, from the wrath of God. So all together here in these two verses, Paul is saying, I came and I preached you the gospel. And you said you received it. You believed it. And you claim now to be standing in it. And if so, if you're walking with Christ, you've been saved, you are saved, and you will be saved unto the last day. So Paul's making reference here to his own preaching, and he follows it with a positive affirmation that the Corinthians responded to it well. And then he warns them to not deviate from the gospel unless all that was received, all that they possibly believed in was in vain. And that is incredibly relevant to us in our day. A very familiar parable in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus is describing how the word of God lands upon the hearts of different people. He basically lays out four different kinds of hearts. And of those four hearts, one of them rejects the word altogether 
Two of them seem to receive the word initially and think they're saved when they really aren't. But only the fourth one receives the word of God in a way that is true salvation, in a way that bears gospel fruit. So the first falls on the path and Satan comes and snatches it away. They reject the word entirely. The second hears it. It is preached. It is initially received. It even begins to grow a little bit. What, what happens though? It, it fell on rocky ground. So it has no roots. It springs up fast and the sun comes out and it scorches it and it withers and dies. And Jesus says, this is a heart like one who hears the good news, but soon earthly trials come. Suffering or hardship comes into their life and they fall away entirely. The third was like the second, and initially it springs up fast. They hear the gospel. They, they are attracted to the gospel. And it grows up, but quickly the thorns and thistles and the weeds and the vines grow around it, and it is choked out, and it dies. Jesus says this is initially the one who hears the word of God, but is concerned about the cares of the world, and they're choked out and eventually wither. And it's the fourth heart, the fourth soil that receives the word and steadily and faithfully grows, bearing fruit in abundance. Now, a lot of people have tried to make Jesus' parable say something other than what it is. These are not various ways that Christians hear the word of God. Jesus is very clearly saying, listen, a lot of people are going to think they're Christians and they're really not. Why? Because they're either not receiving the word of God at all, or the trials of this life are are crushing them, or they're being choked out by the cares of the world. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, not everyone who says they are or thinks they are Christians are actually Christians. You cannot simultaneously claim to have received the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet be a worker of lawlessness. What is lawlessness? 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. Does this apply in our context? Of course. The latest Gallup poll says that 77% of Americans self-identify as Christians. 77%. I'm wondering if any one of us can honestly take a look at our cultural climate and agree with that statistic. It is clear that 77% of our country is not Christian. We're very consumed with the world, absolutely positively swept away by the world's way of thinking and acting. And whether one identifies as liberal or conservative or as an atheist, or as agnostic, or as a man, or a woman, or black, or white, or transgender, or biracial, or LGBTQ, whatever it is, in the end, many will hear, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. But Lord, 
I went to rallies in support of climate change initiatives. I washed the feet of the homeless. I told people not to be judgmental. I volunteered my time at the animal shelter. Or, Lord, I rallied for prayer in public schools. I went to church a few times every year. I shared all of those posts on Facebook that told me if I didn't, I was ashamed. I voted for Republicans. But here's the big question. Where's the fruit? What is the fruit of our salvation? If we are genuinely saved, we will be walking in the Spirit. And those who walk in the Spirit have what? The fruit of the Spirit. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, for those who walk in the Spirit, our greatest concern is not all of these things that we think we're doing to earn God's favor. Our greatest concern is what God has done in Jesus Christ, that our favor could be secure in Him. I can say all day long that I believe that I'm a duck. But if I don't have webbed feet and a bill and wings and feathers and an ability to fly and float on water, and I don't have that ability, I am not a duck. But I really believe I am. Ah, but you're not. You're just not. You see, a Christian isn't a Christian just because they say they are. A Christian is a Christian when they've been objectively rescued from the wrath of God. And verse 1 says that they're standing in the gospel that was preached, holding fast, verse 2, to the word of God. So notice the condition in verse 2. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you. So Paul gives us a sober, sober reminder here that many people believe in vain. Does that mean they lose their salvation? No. That's not possible. What it does mean, according to 1 John 2.19, is that they were never Christians in the first place. So we have a problem, don't we? Paul identifies that the problem is as simple as a three-letter word, sin. And we're all sinners. And we all have, in word and in thought and in deed, done what we were not to do and have not done the things we were supposed to do. We've committed sins of omission by not doing what's right. We've committed sins of commission by doing the things that are wrong. And the result of our sin is that each and every one of us deserves to die in judgment. And that's really, really bad news. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve to die. But that's not where Paul leaves us. He gets to the good news in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the bread and butter. Of all that can be known, this is the one thing that is absolutely, assuredly, must be known. Of all the facts coming in day by day, through all the headlines and all the tweets and all the Facebook posts and news flashes and philosophical musings and political maneuverings, this is the one thing that is of first and greatest importance. And this doesn't mean nothing else is important. 
Let's understand how God works, what means he employs, what he's most concerned about. And see that this is what God determines is most important, not Paul. Notice in verse 3, Paul said it's something that he also received. He's not making this up. This isn't his personal preference. This is him delivering what he himself received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was made clear by eyewitnesses, and we'll see that shortly. So what is it? What is of first importance? Look again, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. All right, two main things he says. First, Jesus died, and second, Jesus rose from the dead. So Paul tells us Jesus died and was buried. Christ died for our sins, and he did so in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus' life, his being crucified, is a simple historical fact, and no serious historical or uh, no, no serious historian or scholar has ever sought to actually deny that as an actual fact. Jesus was a man. Jesus was crucified. So while the world may deny that Jesus was God while simultaneously being man, there's no denying the historical reality of his existence. But as Christians, we don't believe that Jesus was just a man. He was 100% man, born of a virgin. But he was also 100% God come down from heaven to live in human flesh that he might die for all mankind. Jesus underwent flogging, a brutal beating that left him nearly dead. Many men died just from the unbelievably excruciating beating that Jesus himself suffered. Flesh was removed from his body and no doubt would have caused him to go into shock. Profuse bleeding and hunger and dehydration All of this after a sleepless night. And then the executioners forced him to carry his own cross to the place where he would be crucified. And they literally nailed him to the Roman crossbar through his hands and feet in a painful, publicly humiliating way to die. And he died. Jesus died. The executioner was there. And his job was to ensure that he was in fact dead. And to guarantee death, they sent a spear through his side, under his ribcage, up into his heart, puncturing his heart, causing water and blood to flow out of his side, guaranteeing that beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was in fact dead. Jesus died. Why? You know, a lot of so-called good people die. A lot of people die what we consider untimely and unpleasant deaths. But why did Jesus die? This is what is so significant for us. Paul says that Jesus died for our sins. What does that mean? Romans 6.23 tells us that the penalty for sin is death. God is a holy, righteous, and good God. And any offense against him results in the penalty of death. And we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And God, having made clear through the law what he expects of all mankind, 
shows that in our failure to uphold what he calls us to do, we are absolutely guilty as charged. And every man everywhere knows, apart from their Bible, that they are guilty because the law is written on their hearts. And subsequently, the penalty of sin must be paid, and it will be paid. The consequence of death must be faced. And out of a love and a grace and mercy, God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived without sin because we couldn't. And so he could die as a substitute for our sins. He paid the penalty of death. So there are two ways we can approach the day of judgment. One, we can approach the day of judgment as one depending on our own good works, our own good deeds, our own righteousness, our own way of seeking to live up of what God commands. And by the way, God demands 100% perfection from day one. Or two, we can approach the day of judgment as one who Christ has died for and that we point to and say, he is my payment. He has paid my price. I am a sinner, but he is a perfect sacrifice, and I am his, and he is mine. I was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So Paul makes this emphatic statement that Jesus Christ died. It's a historical fact, but it also carries very important theological meaning and eternal meaning and hope-filled meaning. He died to pay the penalty for our sins as our substitute in love in our place. So what that means is when we consider the cross, we should consider the fact that we should have suffered, that we should suffer, that we should die, that we should undergo all that Christ underwent because of the person that I am and the life that I have lived, deserving all that Jesus took in my place. But in Christ, I don't have to die that kind of death. I don't have to face eternal judgment because even though my sin is great, my Savior is far greater. This is the first Paul First thing Paul says is of first importance. Jesus Christ died for our sins and he was buried. He was taken down off the cross. It was prepared for burial, somewhat like you probably uh, know about mummification. They wrap the body and anoint it with spices and these things. But Jesus didn't have a tomb to be laid in. So one of his followers, a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, gifted his tomb to Jesus. And this was a fulfillment of what was promised in Isaiah 53. And his body was laid in the tomb and a large stone was rolled over the entrance of the tomb to guarantee nobody would mess with the body. The seal of the government was placed on the tomb to make sure that no one would enter in. And then to further guarantee that nobody was going into that tomb, a guard was posted outside. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus was put into a tomb that was sealed tight. And all of this was foretold hundreds and in some cases thousands of years prior to his presence on the earth, most notably in the book of Isaiah. 
This is why Paul writes that all of this happened in accordance with scriptures. And then Paul makes a second claim, an even more preposterous claim in verse 4. Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. Jesus Christ, unlike anyone else who has ever lived, unlike any religious teacher who has ever taught, unlike any miracle worker who has ever served, Jesus Christ conquered death. That makes him distinct and superior to everyone who has ever lived. Jesus Christ rose, and that is altogether a unique claim. And it's worthy of investigation. Why? Because all of Christianity hinges on this central significant issue of Jesus being raised from the dead. If you don't believe that's true, you're not a Christian. And it it is Paul's simple summary of the truth of Christianity. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose from the dead. And to believe this in a saving way by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is what it means to be in Christ. In the first century, there were a lot of so-called messianic movements, and a lot of them were executed. One scholar writes this, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leaders had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. They could give up on the revolution or they could find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option, unless, of course, he was. So rest assured that first century people were no less perplexed by the reality of a resurrection as you and I would be today. They found it just as inconceivable. The only way anyone embraced the resurrection was by allowing the evidence to challenge and change the way they saw and understood things. It had to change what they thought was possible. And so you see, even even though they struggled with the truth of the resurrection in the same way we do, they were confronted with the overwhelming evidence, not just of the words that we read, but also eyewitness accounts of those who followed Jesus. You see, without the resurrection, Jesus' death was absolutely senseless. It was useless. It was to no avail. It was completely powerless. The cross would have simply been a massive injustice that we mourn over because an innocent man was put to death. Death without resurrection for Jesus is pointless. And Jesus would be no more God than anyone else who's ever died. But having been raised from the dead, having been raised up, death is crushed to death. Death is conquered. And the benefit of that is that I get to live life because I've been raised with Christ. Not here and now, but forever. One writer says, I can honestly say that I've staked my life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Putting my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is only as good as the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. 
I've invested everything in, staked everything on, entrusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. And this is why the Apostle Paul says later in this chapter, if the resurrection didn't happen, he doesn't say no big deal or oh well. He says if the resurrection never happened, then those of us who put our hope in that reality are the most to be pitied in all the world. What a waste, a waste of time. What a foolish waste of belief. So you see, this is one of the most important questions we can answer. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Everything hinges on our response to that question. And Paul goes on to support his claim with historical evidence. Look at verse 5. And then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul is explaining that Jesus appeared to many people. So what's the point here? The point lies in Paul's words in verse 6. Most of these eyewitnesses at the time of his writing were still alive. Why does that matter? Because he's telling his readers, you don't believe me? No problem. Go ask them. And so critics might say, yeah, well, these men were liars. Really? How many people do you know that have willingly died for a lie? These are men who serve the poor and needy and widows and orphans and outcasts. They are not men who are greedy, power-seeking, or after fame and fortune. They are men who suffered, men who were on the run, men who were hated and despised, and they were murdered in their poverty and in shame. Why? Because of what they saw and because of what they experienced and because of what they knew to be true. They weren't killed because they committed a crime or got into a fight. They were killed because of what they believed and because they were making it known because of what they saw. You see, Jesus was not hiding after the resurrection. He was alive. He was walking around. He was visible to the public. Everybody had an opportunity to verify that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. And some others might say, well, those are his friends. Maybe they got together with his acquaintances, his family. Maybe they were predisposed to eagerly yearn for the coming of Jesus from the dead. Maybe they worked together in their hearts because they really wanted for Jesus to rise. They made this up. And hundreds of thousands of people were in on the lie. And they all suffered for no apparent reason that maybe someday their dream would come true. That might sound ridiculous, but let's just say it's true. Let's pretend that's accurate. So Paul makes his final point, and then he finalizes the case of the resurrection. Paul says, I saw him too. So let's think about this logically now, considering who Paul was. He wasn't an acquaintance or a friend of Jesus. He wasn't a follower. He was an enemy of Jesus. He hated him with a deep hatred unlike any other kind of hatred anyone else had for another person. And he despised Christians. 
And one of the first introductions to Paul in the whole Bible, in the book of Acts, is when he's overseeing the murder of a Christian named Stephen because he worshiped Jesus. And Paul's mission, his reason for living, was to murder every Christian he could until something happened. What was it? He was going down a road and he had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And once he saw Jesus, Paul was struck with the irrefutable fact that Jesus was and is God who has taken away sin and has conquered death and deserves our worship alone. He was radically transformed. And as a result, he was a man who was later shipwrecked and homeless and beaten and left for dead and impoverished and on the run and in prison, all for one reason. He wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. And Paul is saying this, I wouldn't lie. I wouldn't have this kind of change of heart and change of mind and change of life if it were not actually true. Why would a man like Paul tell a lie that was absolutely opposed to everything he said and everything that he lived for in an instant? It didn't profit him at all. No fame, no money, no glory. In fact, it brought him exactly the opposite of what he already had. He gave everything up. He was absolutely transformed because he had an encounter with the living Christ. Because Christ did rise from the dead. And then Paul concludes, beginning in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether... Then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Here's the point. Christians are not good people. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you understand something that I can agree with you on completely. I'm not impressed with Christians. I think they're all sinners. And that begins, that thought begins every single morning when I wake up and look in the mirror. I'm not impressed at all. So you might say, well, Christians aren't any better than I am. And we will all say, amen. But here's the thing. God does not save us from his wrath because we are good people. God does not save us because we are lovely people or deserving people. God saves us in spite of who we are and in spite of what we've done. You might ask, well, how does that work? How do undeserving people get love? How do guilty people get forgiveness? How do rebellious people get affection? How do condemned people get mercy? And you know what the answer is? Grace. Grace. It's at the center of everything we believe. Christians are people who are all about grace because grace comes from Jesus. We're sinners, and we don't merit, and we don't deserve, and we don't earn God's love or his favor. None of us can claim a right from God to be kind to us, or to forgive us, or to embrace us, or to deliver us. None of us has that right, but by his grace, the offer is given freely. 
It's God's love in action. It's God's mercy in action, his kindness at work. It is all of grace. Paul says, I am saved by grace, and that is all. And all who are saved from death and hell and sin and judgment are saved by grace through faith apart from, G- apart from any works of the law in Jesus Christ alone. Are you saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ? He calls you to one thing. Trust in him. Repent of your sin. Believe in Christ. And when God saves a person by grace, he empowers us to live new lives. Lives that have eternal value. Lives that produce healthy, valuable fruit because they bear witness to Jesus Christ. So this morning, here's what all of us need to hear. At the center of the Christian faith is the gospel. And at the center of the gospel is a cross and an empty tomb. And so we preach, and by God's grace, there are those who hear and believe. What about you? Will you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the one that we can assuredly believe in by faith who has been killed on your behalf to take up the penalty upon himself, the penalty of sin, and be raised from the dead to conquer sin in the grave. You and I may not always agree what's important on a day-to-day basis. I hope you don't always agree with MSNBC or Fox News or CNN or the Drudge Report. But of this one thing, we can be sure. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance. That changes everything. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for the very important reminder of what is of first importance for all of mankind. We rejoice in Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life that we could not live died a sinner's death in our place, receiving upon himself the full wrath of the Father, dying in our place, being put in a tomb that was our tomb, and three days later being raised from the dead to conquer death and to give us everlasting life. I pray, God, that you help us all to remember this great reality that in Christ, death is conquered and life is ours to live for him and with him. And may it be, God, that should anyone in here today be separated from you by their sin, that you would bring them to the end of themselves and that you would give them new life in Jesus. We've examined the evidence. We've looked to your word and seen the reasons you've given But Lord, the most irrefutable fact is that Christ is alive. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would awaken sinners to life, that you would strengthen the resolve of your people, that you would continue to work in our hearts a love for Christ and a desire to know more of Christ and to be continually reminded of this great truth that is of first importance that we are Christ's and he is ours when we rest in him because of what he has accomplished for us.
and we give you thanks and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.